Al Jazeera podcast. Wahid Al-Assar used to cross from his home in Gaza to work in Israel every day. We are workers. We entered Israel with permits. We went there to work and feed our kids. Wahid was one of the Palestinian laborers who formed the backbone of Israel's construction and agricultural workforce. And after a 16-year blockade on Gaza's economy, Israeli work permits were considered a precious lifeline for families. We're 11 together with myself and my wife, not to mention my grandchildren. God help us. I went to work to provide for my family who are struggling to live. But following the Hamas attack on October 7th, Israel declared war and revoked all of the permits for workers from Gaza. In an instant, Wahid's legal status and income were gone. Since then, thousands of Palestinian workers have been rounded up and sent to prisons. We are laborers. We didn't know where to go. The police came and took us from one prison to the other. Three different prisons. Some of us were beaten up. So what happened to Wahid and the other Palestinian workers detained in Israel? And what lies ahead for them? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The topic for today's episode was suggested to us by a listener. If you have your own ideas for stories you want to hear, let us know. We'll have links for how to do that in the episode description. Wahid's story is like thousands of other Palestinian workers who were rounded up throughout Israel after October 7th. We were humiliated and beaten. Every single day, they would torture us. We were subjected to electro-torture, and they released dogs on us. We were treated as detainees, living in constant fear that we might die at any moment. They provided us with the bare minimum of food, water, just to keep us alive. To understand what Wahid and others went through, we spoke to someone who's been documenting the abuses against them. I'm Tanya Harry. I'm the executive director of Gisha, the Legal Center for Freedom of Movement. Tanya and her colleagues started hearing from panicked Palestinian workers who were suddenly facing a new reality after October 7th. Where an Israeli organization that works to promote freedom of movement for Palestinians, mainly in the Gaza Strip, The first call that we documented was actually on uh, October 9th. We heard about a group of workers that were actually inside of a house under construction in Stilot, which is, um, you know, the largest community that is close to the Gaza Strip. And they were afraid to come out of the house for fear that, you know, they might be lynched, that they might be shot at by army and police forces that were in the area. Tanya and her colleagues then learned that Israeli authorities had canceled all work permits on October 10th. Really with a a kind of a flip of a switch. 
We estimate that there were something like 18,000, maybe even more than 18,000 people from Gaza who had permits to work in Israel on October 7th. Now, we don't know how many of them would have been inside of Israel at the time. It was a holiday weekend, so in theory, Gaza was meant to be under closure. But we think thousands were in Israel or in the West Bank. The Israeli authorities later said about 4,000 people But we know that about 4,000 have now been returned and there are still many who are outside. So we think that that number was probably higher. Some workers sought relative safety from Israel by fleeing to the occupied West Bank. Many are still stranded there. Nearly 7,000 workers from Gaza found themselves stuck in the West Bank. Others who weren't as lucky were rounded up by Israeli soldiers. So, you know, we've started to take testimonies from individuals who were released. And we heard about people being taken and essentially tied up, blindfolded, put on the ground for around three days at a time, not given food or water. They were not allowed to go to the bathroom. So they were, you know, relieving themselves just in place. They were being threatened by the soldiers. They were told that they would be killed. One person shared with us that a soldier said, we'll drill into your head with a screwdriver. They were um, yelled at, they were beaten. These workers also had their belongings confiscated, including their ID cards, their phones, and more. Many of the people said that they had a lot of money on them, that their employers sort of realizing that they might not be able to come into work for a considerable amount of time, paid them their wages, either wages that were owed to them or in some cases even wages for the rest of the month. And this money was just taken from everyone. Some people said that the soldiers took some kind of inventory, but some people described being things being thrown into the garbage. From there, things didn't get any better as the workers were sent to Israeli military detention camps. And there, too, we heard about just terrible, terrible conditions. People being made to sleep outside on very dirty, thin mattresses. People said that they felt like they were just given enough so that they wouldn't starve, but that the food was was dusty, it was sometimes rotten, you had moldy bread, and, you know, people were just kind of eating just to stay alive. And the kind of cruelty that they described is is just really horrible. It gives a sense that the soldiers were really motivated by vengeance, by, by anger taken out on these people that were being detained. Tanya says the workers were not allowed to speak with anyone, including their families or lawyers. There was really no to no even resemblance of due process whatsoever. We also know that the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, was refused access to these people. Tanya's organization submitted letters and petitions to the Israeli courts. We even asked, you know, just for the legal grounds on which these people were being held, and we were given no information about that. So I think really any way you look at it, you know, the, the detaining of these individuals was, was just completely unlawful. And I would say beyond that, just morally reprehensible. 
And Tanya says there hasn't been much interest from Israeli authorities in protecting the workers' rights. You know, well before October 7, the courts look upon the work of organizations like ours with a kind of suspicious eye that we're working on behalf of the enemy. So if you can imagine, after October 7th, there really is no discourse inside of Israel about the human rights of, of Palestinians generally, and certainly not about these workers. And there's just very, very little compassion and empathy you know, even for civilians, let alone for the human rights also of all detainees. Last week, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported that two Palestinian laborers had died in detention. The normal procedure is to report deaths in prison and open an investigation. That did not happen in these cases. Tanya says she's unfortunately not surprised by the reports of deaths, and worries there could be more. Just because of the inhumane conditions that we're hearing, you know, in which they were held. At the start of November, after weeks in detention, thousands of these workers were released. The Israeli government deported them back to Gaza. The office of Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the workers from Gaza who were in Israel on the day of the outbreak of the war would be returned to Gaza. Wearing ankle tags used by the Israeli army, they were dropped near the border. They left us at Karma Salem crossing. We had to walk two kilometers from the crossing. We don't know how many are still trying to get home. But Wahid was finally reunited with his family, almost a month after he was detained. And Israel announced there would be no more Palestinian workers from Gaza. Israel is severing all contact with Gaza, says Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But even now that the workers have returned back to Gaza, Tanya's hearing from more people who say their suffering isn't over. We're also hearing people reporting that the conditions they faced during detention are still having an effect on them now, a few weeks after they've been released, that they're still having aches and pains. And of course, we know that the health system in Gaza has basically collapsed. After the break, the economy's dependent on these workers and how what's happened to them could create ripples for years to come. On the Inside Story podcast, why are Gaza's hospitals under relentless Israeli attack despite being protected under international law? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Gaza has spent the past 16 years under an economic blockade that has made leaving the enclave a coveted opportunity. Israel's blockade has hollowed out Gaza's economy, where the UN estimates unemployment is at about 45%. Tanya Harry says wages in Israel could be five, six, seven times what they could earn in Gaza. Most of the workers were working in the construction sector, in agriculture, 
So there's a tremendous financial incentive to withstand really difficult conditions. The Israeli government limited the number of permits given to workers from Gaza. An estimated 18,500 people had valid papers on October 7th. Priority was typically given to the families most in need. There were estimates that something like 140,000 people had originally applied for this narrow permit quota. So the authorities inside of Gaza, they created sort of internal criteria based on you know, how many dependents you have, if your spouse is working or not, and tried to get to applicants who were really you know, desperate for these permits. And the security check was strenuous, she says. Those who were first chosen by Palestinian officials for the permit would then undergo a security check from the Israeli side. It could include checking whether applicants had been a victim of past Israeli military action, which today would disqualify almost everyone in Gaza. You know, the security screening is is much broader than one might think at the outset. So, you know, they don't just check to see if you yourself have been involved in any political or militant activity. They're also checking a kind of wide scope around you of your family members, your immediate family members. It could be even, you know, the neighborhood you live in, who who your neighbors are. There was a sense that, you know, you could be influenced to collaborate with militants if your brother was, uh, you know, part of the Gaza government or involved in militant activity. So you would have people sort of weeded out, you know, by really indirect affiliation. I mean, it would be much wider than a normal uh, sort of security screening that you would think of. Tanya says up until the war, There hadn't been any major incident involving Palestinians working in Israel for a long time. You know, we don't know of any cases since 2014 of people who had permits who were involved in in attacks. There have been some discussions about what happened on October 7th and about whether the workers or any of the workers who were inside of Israel took part in those attacks. We do know that some people are still being held in detention. I can say they've released now 4,000 workers. And Israel's detention and ban on Palestinian workers carries another heavy price. It won't just cause economic pain in Gaza. Tanya says she can see the ripples across the Israeli economy, too. On the eve of October 7th, uh, something like 150,000 Palestinian workers total were working inside of Israel. So that has a huge impact on various sectors inside of Israel. In fact, it's estimated that about 76,000 workers from Gaza and the West Bank were working in the construction sector alone. And I should say, too, that even before October 7th and this total lockdown on workers coming in, there were already reports of severe shortages of workers in certain sectors. And there is one exception now that allows about 8,000 workers from the West Bank back into Israel. 
indicating how necessary they are. But the construction sector is still by and large completely shut down. We can expect that this will have a ripple effect on on the cost of housing. Also, the Ministry of Agriculture has been really affected. So there's actually a campaign right now throughout the country to get people to volunteer to come and pick fruits and vegetables. So, you know, that these items don't kind of rot in the fields and also lead to severe price hikes inside of Israel. I can say that already prices have gone up of fruits and vegetables because uh, there's a shortage of hands. So, you know, in the past, of course, we live in a, in a volatile uh, area. There have been, of course, several military operations in Gaza. So we've certainly seen periods of time where workers are not allowed in, but not in such a complete and sustained way as we're seeing now. And there are reports that the Israeli government is trying to curb the economic fallout by negotiating to bring in foreign workers from other countries like India and Vietnam. The Israeli government plans to increase the number of foreign workers allowed into the country to replace Palestinian workers and foreigners who have fled the region. But Tanya says that could create other problems the Israeli government wants to avoid. What we've seen in the past is that there's actually been a preference for Palestinian labor for demographic reasons. The idea is that, you know, Palestinians, they come in, they work, and then eventually they go back to their families in Gaza or in the West Bank. Whereas the foreign workers are here for a period of time, and then they end up, some of them eventually deciding to stay or wanting to stay. They might get married, they might have children here. And so Israel actually prefers for demographic reasons to sort of maintain a Jewish majority in the country. So we've seen in the past a preference for Palestinian labor for these reasons. When Wahid, the day laborer we heard from earlier, returned home to Gaza a month after the war began, he was shocked to see the scale of destruction but he said he was still relieved to be with his family. Tanya says she's heard the same from many others. I think at first we thought, you know, it's so dangerous in Gaza, they won't want to go back. But but actually many of them just, they just wanted to be reunited with their their wives, with their children. You know, they said that they preferred to be there and to die together with their families rather than to be worried about them and just sort of watching uh, from afar. She says their struggle now isn't just to return home, but to survive the war and an uncertain future. And I think that what's also really difficult is the prospect of, you know, what happens in the day after. I mean, as hard as it is at this moment while we're we're in the midst of the war to even imagine the day after. I think that, you know, for for these people, they were breadwinners. They were supporting their family members. In many cases, they were also supporting their extended family members. There were estimates at one point that, you know, each worker was supporting somewhere between 15 and 20 people with the wages they were receiving. So I think that these people are also feeling a real crushing sense of loss about what the future holds from them. And that's The Take. 
Before we go, as I mentioned at the top, this story was suggested to us by a listener to our Instagram account at AJE Podcasts. If you have your own ideas for stories, let us know on social media. We'll have links in this show's description. This episode was produced by Miranda Lynn and Sari Al Khalili with Faranisa Campana, Khalid Sultan, David Enders, Amy Walters, Chloe Kaylee, Sonia Bagat, Ashish Malhotra, Zaina Bazir, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is the Takes executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.